Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Matthew Taylor about the relationship between charismatic Christianity and political power and January 6th. In part one, I offered a more thorough introduction to this two-part series. In part one, we talk about Matt's background and why January 6th caused him to study charismatic Christianity in the first place and how Trump's attempt to steal the election intersected with it, and how an idea called the New Apostolic Reformation led to a zealous engagement in politics. So if you haven't listened to that part already, I recommend starting there. Here in part two, we discuss the theological basis for Trump, arguably a non-Christian, being chosen by God to be president, the belief that political leaders are appointed by God, something called strategic spiritual warfare at the Capitol on January 6th. We talk about the discourse of violence in charismatic Christianity leading to January 6th and the lack of understanding of charismatic Christians in American media. We also look at why it's important to be precise about the threats to pluralism that are presented by part of charismatic Christianity. And then finally, we talk about what Matt is seeing within this subculture as we head toward the 2024 election and what you can do to bring some health to these discussions. And now, without further ado, here is part two of Holy War, my conversation with Dr. Matthew Taylor. This is really important because since 2015, there was a lot of talk about uh, the hypocrisy of evangelical Christianity uh, and the Christian support in Donald Trump, um, who obviously, for, for very well-documented reasons, is far from an ideal Christian. Is this how we get theology that demands Trump as president, sort of unwavering fealty uh, to the idea that he must be president, that God has chosen him? Um, it doesn't matter if, he, if, if he's not truly a Christian. This is a, a huge piece of how, where that theology comes from. It's one of, if, if you go into, um, especially independent charismatic, but the, these ideas have spread outside of independent charismatic Christianity. Um, so there's a sociologist named Paul Jupe, who just earlier this year did a survey um, asking, among all Americans, he actually asked the question about the seven mountains. Do you think Christians should stand atop the seven mountains of cultural influence? Using Walnut's phrase, a phrase that did not exist 25 years ago, more than 20% of Americans said yes. They either agree or strongly agree with that statement. That, I mean, if you think like that, yeah. th th that's like 20% is roughly how many evangelicals yeah. there are. That's the, the power of a meme, folks. That, this is, this is Walnow's meme that he created in 2001, 2000, 2001. And now it's 20% of Americans are familiar enough with it. They say, I agree that Christian, it's not just kind of Christians should influence society. Christians should stand atop the seven mountains of, of influence. Um, so it has grown everywhere. So that's one very big piece of the, the theology of Christian Trumpism. The other, one of the other big pieces comes um, also from Walnow. Um, Walnow is one of these um, leaders that comes into these meetings with Paula White Kane in the fall of, of uh, 2015. So the Trump campaign is just getting up off the ground. Walnow is invited into one of these meetings, um, and he claims that he's sitting there, and um, God speaks to him during this meeting with Trump. And God tells him, I, I want an Isaiah 45 Cyrus for president. And Wall now begins to cogitate on this and reflect on it. And he ultimately creates another prophetic meme called the Cyrus anointing. It's, it, it, it's funny because part of what he says um, in, the, in the early versions of this, he says, um, Donald Trump 
He says, God tells him, Donald Trump is a wrecking ball, the spirit of political correctness. But it, 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 if you really go back and look at some of the early versions of it, you can tell what's going on in his head because he actually, in the earliest versions, he says, Donald Trump is a Miley Cyrus wrecking ball. Oh my God, I was just going to say, so Miley he, would like a word. <laughs> so so like that, that was the hit pop song from like two years before. And so he's, he's like using this kind of Miley Cyrus imagery. And then he drops the Miley Cyrus part over time. But, but like originally, that's what he was talking about. Um, and so, but this idea of Cyrus, so in, um, in the biblical history, the, the Jewish people are taken away into exile in Babylon. And then the Persian empire led by King Cyrus takes over, conquers the Babylonian empire. And King Cyrus is the one who sends the Jewish people back from exile to rebuild Jerusalem. And so... The, the imagery, and, and Walnut was kind of meditating on Isaiah chapter 45, which is about Cyrus. And he says, Cyrus was a secular pagan leader who did not come from Israel, did not have the values of Israel, but God anointed Cyrus as a Messiah. The, 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 this term Messiah means an anointed one, as a Messiah for Israel. Even, and even though, and it says in Isaiah 45, even though he does not know God, he has this purpose. And, and so Walnow said, even he, in his second meeting with Trump, he actually tells this to into his face. He says, you know, you're not an evangelical and I know you're not an evangelical, but God has given you a Cyrus anointing. And even though you don't know God the way you need to, God is going to use you in this way. He becomes one of the first people to offer these prophecies to Trump. A lot of these people wind up offering these prophecies to, directly to Donald Trump. Um, but Walnow says, in some ways, he's acknowledging that Trump is not a Christian, or at least not a, not a good Christian, but he can use his pagan warrior mode to win for Christians. He's a weapon. He's, he's an instrument yeah, of he's God. An instrument. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and they, they might even warm to the idea of him being a weapon. Yeah. They see him that way. So can I just insert, this is, this, this, what I'm about to ask you is not really part of the series, but I can't help think about, uh, this piece of the conversation without invoking the fellowship or the family or whatever you want to call them. Um, um, and I have some direct experience with this group from my time on the Hill working for a Senator named John Ensign. Um, and I would consider this sort of wing of uh, Christian politics to be far more establishment but it's exactly the kind of ideology that they embrace, which is, as I think um, Jeff Charlotte calls it, Jesus plus nothing. Mm. Jesus plus nothing is the idea. First, that's that's their way of getting around any other kind of judgment um, or moral judgment. But the idea that our leaders are chosen, ordained by God, and that their power is evidence of that blessing, mm. evidence on its own of that blessing. And therefore, we must do everything in our power to maintain their power. Right. So power becomes a self-reinforcing um, um, mandate, essentially. Uh, the fellowship or the, I, I like to think of them as the Christian CIA because they have a very political mission and they intervene in all kinds of uh, of affairs, and they also host the National Prayer Breakfast, which mm -hmm. still happens. Yep. Presidents of both parties attend it every single year. Um, that changed this year. Did it change this year? Yeah, they, 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 so there still is a National Prayer Breakfast organized by the family, but they um, they split it off. They created a separate foundation 
um, run more by Congress. Okay, interesting. Bi- that's bipartisan. Okay. So there still is a there's a, now there there's actually three prayer breakfasts now. One that's basically run by NAR leaders. Oh, one, well, at least this, this is year, exactly what I wanted. To at least this year it was, and then there's the one run by the fellowship, and then there's one run by um, the the Congress that's a little more bipartisan. Okay, and yeah. I should say when I say the family, it's capital T, capital F. I'm not yeah. referring to you know a, a a nuclear family, although there's a guy named Doug Coe who's now no longer um, alive. Uh, how does this part of the apparatus? interact with or overlap with um, what we're talking about, the Cyrus blessing and Lance Walna's sort of uh, idea of Trump as a modern day Cyrus. Yeah, I'm not an expert on the family or the fellowship. And um, my understanding, just from having seen the Netflix documentary and read some of Charlotte's material, is is that um, they're, they're more offering an ex post facto understanding of political power. So Political leaders are elected, and that means they're anointed. And therefore, we support them, we minister to them, we gather them, we disciple them, and then they legislate according to our agenda. Walnau is taking a pretty different model here. He's also talking about anointing, but he's talking about this well before the election. This is a year before the election that he's calling Trump a Cyrus and saying there's a prophetic destiny on Donald Trump, that we need to work to get him elected. This is, God has given this destiny, the Cyrus anointing to him, and we need to unite around him, and we need to to support him in that, right? And so he's doing this in the midst of a primary. And in in that primary, you had multiple candidates who were evangelical, right? You had Marco Rubio and Ben Carson. (laughs) Absolutely. And, and, And yet Walnow is stepping in and saying, no, God told me that Trump is the anointed leader. And Mike Johnson was just uh, uh, elected as Speaker of the House. And you, you have some of these same circles talking about, even before that, that moment, we're saying he's the anointed leader that God has chosen. Now, in this world, you have to be a little bit careful because I think a lot of times when we think about prophecy, at least outside of that world, we think of it as predicting the future. And that's not Walnow or the NAR's understanding of prophecy. Their understanding of prophecy is God has a will, but God doesn't enact God's own will willy-nilly, right? God doesn't just do this stuff. It's not a predestination mode. God expresses God's will through the prophets like Walnow, but then you have to do spiritual warfare and you have to do real world organizing and you have to bring about the will of God. So when he says that God wants Donald Trump to become president, he's not saying Donald Trump will be president. He's saying God chose him to do that. We need to make it happen. And we're going to do that through spiritual warfare, yep. which is where we need to go next. So this is all leading to the January 6th attack uh, on the Capitol. We've talked about the actions of Donald Trump and his supporters um, between Election Day in 2020 and January 6th. Um, but what was really helpful in this series is how you laid out how the kindling for the fire was really already there for Trump, um, just waiting to be lit. So um, can you talk about the development of spiritual warfare language in the U.S. Um, and the differences between personal spiritual warfare, personal spiritual struggle, and the kind of I think you call it strategic spiritual warfare in the series, which is a completely different conception. Yeah. So um, 
in the 1980s, Peter Wagner, still a professor at Fuller Seminary, uh, is experimenting in this world, and he encounters a, a young woman in her 30s named Cindy Jacobs. And Cindy Jacobs is one of these first independent charismatic people who's saying, I'm a prophet. And she's very has this very dramatic delivery, has the sort of, thus says the Lord, and will just tell you what she thinks God is telling you. And so Wagner meets her, and, and she starts to mentor him in some of these ideas of spiritual warfare, um, some of these very kind of radical fringe ideas. And then he, together, she becomes almost an adopted daughter to, to Peter Wagner. And um, he, um, he kind of latches on to some of these ideas from Cindy Jacobs. They work together, um, and they build out these different frameworks of spiritual warfare. Now, spiritual warfare, it, it, at a very simple level, spiritual warfare is just this, this idea that there are angels and demons that affect the world. And um, it, it comes out of passages in the New Testament, especially in the book of Ephesians. Um, and the idea is that Christians can participate in the warfare between these demons and these angels um, through prayer, through on the a little bit more extreme end, exorcism, ritual, through worship, right? That, that, um, and so spiritual warfare is kind of a, it's an added dimension to Christian spirituality. So the idea is like, oh, I, I, I'm feeling depressed. Maybe I'm being oppressed by a demon. Maybe I need to pray against this depression and deliver myself of this depression, right? So that, that would be how most Christians who believe in spiritual warfare believe in it. Yeah. But what Jacobs and Wagner start building in the 1990s is there are these very aggressive global structures of spiritual warfare that they call strategic level spiritual warfare. And again, if you think about that military analogy about well, prophets are the intelligence, they're, they're the spies, and then the apostles are the generals. You can start to conceptualize a little more where they're coming from. So Cindy Jacobs is running an organization called Generals of Intercession, right? So she's not just interested in mobilizing people to do battle, to do spiritual warfare. She wants to find the generals, the apostles, and the prophets who can give strategy and give structure and so they start imagining this kind of cosmic global spiritual warfare where, and, and Wagner got very interested in how he, he believed that demonic hierarchies are real, that there are levels of demons and that there are commander demons that he would call territorial spirits. This was a signature Wagner phrase. And the territorial spirits control literal physical territory. So Geography Washington, on the map. Washington, D.C. Yeah. has particular territorial spirits that govern it. And then they those have names. Com- the, yeah, and they, they'll, yeah. they'll name it. Oh, that's the spirit of Jezebel. Right. Or, right? And, and, and then they'll um, develop strategies, war strategies. And they're using all this military language, boots on the ground. We need boots on the ground strike teams to go and pray and declare and displace those territorial spirits, defeat them so that Washington, yeah. D.C. Can, can become a Christian city. Yeah. Or so that Arizona can become a Christian state, right? Yeah. So, and they start map, they, 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 they will literally go walking around neighborhoods, creating spiritual maps. They call it spiritual mapping and, and mapping out in this neighborhood. Oh, there's a spirit of X over there. There's a different spirit over here. And we need to pray against these different spirits. Right. And they develop arsenals yeah. of what they understand as spiritual weapons. So the shofar, which is a, yeah. uh, it's a, it's a ram's horn. It comes out of Jewish uh, sure spiritual sure practice. Yeah. And, um, and, but they'll say, well, the shofar, because it's mentioned in the Bible is a spiritual weapon. Yeah. And this is why you see on January 6th, so many people blowing shofars. Right. And so the idea is God gives strategy 
to these generals on how to execute spiritual warfare campaigns, when to have boots on the ground prayer leaders, and how to push forward the agenda of the kingdom of God in the spiritual realm that also maps onto the physical realm. And Wagner and Jacobs, I mean, they, this becomes incredibly popular in the 1990s, becomes, spreads all over the place. They're, they're very involved in something called the 1040 Window Campaign, which is a global missions campaign um, that is, is really baked in with these ideas of strategic spiritual warfare, or strategic level spiritual warfare. And so that becomes the, one of the dominant modes for the NAR, is that they are the apostles, the generals of spiritual warfare who can organize campaigns of spiritual warfare. I know that there are more than a few people scratching their heads and being like, this sounds absolutely insane right now. Like that there are invisible angels and demons fighting over territory and that human beings are going to somehow uh, help them win or lose these battles by praying. I need to um, emphasize that it's not that far uh, fetched. If you grow up in this culture reading books like those written by Frank Peretti or, um, or I'm trying to think of another author who, who, who wrote a lot of fiction around spiritual warfare, but I read Frank Peretti's books. I did too. And, um, and the idea of spiritual warfare as being a real physical uh, uh, part of our reality is sort of baked into um, certain parts of evangelical culture, certainly was for mine. And so to me, I can see how natural it would be for someone to think about these new ideas, these, the, the more structured, more, um, more organized, more sort of militarized version of the kind of spiritual warfare that they were organizing as simply an amplification of uh, a certain kind of Christian mythology that was already baked into your psyche. It's not that far removed. You don't go from zero to a hundred here. This is a, uh, it's, it's drawing on a part of the culture. Um, the schema is already there in your, in your mind for what they're calling you to do, I guess. Is and it's, fair? All, it's built upon a, a theology of prayer mm -hmm. that is, also coextensive with a lot of evangelicalism. Okay. Yeah. And, and, and so Wagner early on, will talk about himself as an apostle of prayer. Hmm. Um, right. And, and this is how he understands himself in the 1990s. He is a general of spiritual warfare. He's a, a, an apostle of prayer and he's organizing and orchestrating these campaigns of spiritual warfare. And, and just to emphasize these people really, really believe this. Yes. This is not like yes. something on the side that they're kind of making up as they go. They, they really deeply believe. This. You know, so, it as surely as you're alive. And, and to, just to give one illustration that is just mind boggling. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the idea of the 1040 window campaign is that the, the Central Asia, North, kind of uh, the Middle East and Central Asia is the most unchristian part of the globe. And, and they call that the 1040 window between 10 degrees and 40 degrees north lat latitude. And um, so they believe that th this is where missions need to focus. And this is where we need to really do spiritual warfare. In the late 90s, uh, a, a prophet in this movement named Ana Mendez gets a word from God that there's a territorial spirit called the queen of heaven who has a castle on the slopes of Mount Everest. When I heard about this in the series, I'd never heard of the queen of heaven before. This is a brand new concept to me. And, and, and so they believe that she is the territorial spirit 
who controls Central Asia, and if they can displace the Queen of Heaven, then the 1040 window can be evangelized. And so Wagner helps to organize uh, a group of 27 intercessors who make a three-week journey to Mount Everest from all over the world, some from America, some from Vietnam, some from uh, Central America, and they go to, to the slopes of Mount Everest for three weeks to do battle against the Queen of Heaven. One of the people in the group almost dies of a cerebral edema in the, in the course of this. Peter Wagner's wife, Doris, is part of this group. There's a young um, intercessor named Becca Greenwood, who's about 30 at the time, who goes along with Doris and is, is part of this. And um, they spend three weeks, and they claim that they displaced the Queen of Heaven and that this was the, the victory that they needed. They were sort of a, a special forces strike force going after the 1040 window. Becca Greenwood, this 30-year-old who was there on the slopes of Mount Everest, I interviewed her, and when I asked her about it, it was not, she was not like, oh yeah, didn't we do some crazy stuff in the 90s? No, she was very proud. She's like, this was, I, I got to participate in the campaign against the Queen of Heaven. How did they know they displaced her? Through prophecy. And Becca Greenwood was there on January 6th doing spiritual warfare. She and Cindy Jacobs were at the Capitol they had a stage set up. They were praying, and they, they actually had a microphone and a PA system, and they were praying over this PA system, doing, doing strategic-level spiritual warfare, praying against territorial spirits that they believed had taken over the capital, right? So crazy that you had yeah. these people in the 1990s going to Mount Everest. Some of those same people show up on January 6th yeah. to do the exact same practices. Because they believe there was a literal demon at the capital that was controlling the votes in the legislature and that it was their job to do battle against. Yeah. And if you listen, because there are videos of them doing this on January 6th. And if you listen to them, they're saying they're watching the rioting going on. And, but then they're praying and saying, that's not the real struggle here. Mm. The real struggle is spiritual and we need to pray against the territorial spirits because they're the ones who are really in power here. The yeah. crowds are just a manifestation of the chaos. Right. We need to do the spiritual warfare to actually accomplish the goal of getting Trump reinstated. Yeah, something I remember from the series is that you noted that they somehow already knew to be at the Capitol as opposed to at the rally, which was at the other end of the mall. So they had permits issued ahead of time. Um, four out of the six permits that were issued I think, were for groups associated with the New Apostolic Reformation. Yeah. In order to have a, an official protest yeah. at the Capitol, you need to get it cleared by the Capitol Police. Right. Well and ahead that, of time. And that, 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 that takes weeks. That's, yeah. that's, not, that's not a quick process. Right. So Trump on December 19th yeah. declares that January 6th is going to be right. He sends out the tweet, like, be there, we'll be wild. Yeah. And people start mobilizing. There are six permits that are issued for January 6th for protests around the Total. Capitol. Right. Um, three of those, um, are coming either from the stop the steal campaign or groups that are closely associated with them, kind sure. of, kind of shadow groups that are working for them. Everybody's heard of stop the steal. Yeah. Everybody's heard of stop the steal. The other three are charismatic Christian groups who are there to do spiritual warfare. And one of those permits that's issued is for this, the stage that Cindy Jacobs and Becca Greenwood are set up on. It was issued to a group called women for a great America and um, who are friends of Cindy Jacobs. And they um, have, they, they are explicitly there to do spiritual warfare. They are singing worship music. They are speaking in tongues over the Capitol. 
They are making apostolic and prophetic declarations over the capital. And they believe that they were there on the front lines to do that. They were the generals orchestrating this spiritual warfare campaign. They were the boots on the ground strike team. And they were on the backside of the Capitol, not even facing the rally. And so for a long time, they had no idea what was what was going on inside and on the at the doors of the other side of the Capitol. Right. Yeah. They're, they're on the, the Supreme Court right. side of the Capitol. Right. And so they, they see the rioting as it progresses and begin to get worried about it. But they were... They continue praying and doing yeah. spiritual warfare, even as they're watching this riot unfold. It's... Um, this is this is the 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 part of the uh the riot where uh you can you can see the christian flags being used and waved and um and it, once you once you begin to see this once you begin to see how intertwined the um the spiritual warfare component of this uh of the christian supremacy part of the riot you can't unsee it um and i i i think it's a it's a piece of the story, which obviously you think a lot of people have missed and has been untold. It's yeah. kind of undertold. Um, what do, what do people need to understand about, um, how do you think about the way the prosecutions for a lot of these people are, are playing out? And have we learned anything through, um, the testimony, the witnesses that are called, have you noticed anything about the way the prosecutions have, and, and the investigations have unfolded? Um, that show that this was a big part of the motivation? So part of the challenge with the way that the news media works and the way that the legal system in the United States works is that because of the First Amendment and because of um, our culture of generally privileging Christianity and assuming that people's Christian identities are not that interesting, um, it's very hard to understand what the religious identities of the prosecuted rioters are. Okay. Um, I, I mean, I've spent months yeah, in, in these databases yeah. and the, 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 the challenge is um, media don't often ask what church somebody went to. Cause if, if they're Christian, they're, it's just uninteresting. If they're, if they're Mormon, it's interesting. If they're um, Muslim, if they're Jewish, it's interesting. But if they're Christian, it's just that then they're just part of the, the woodwork. Um, and so you don't find out much about their Christian identities. Most people who are being prosecuted have scrubbed their social media. And so it's hard to know who has influenced them. So my research, where I, where I focus is more on the crowds that are surrounding the Capitol, right? Not necessarily the people who went in, right. but the people who were there supporting right. the riot, praying for the riot. And that's where you see a lot of these manifestations. You do get some clues about the people who went in. There was a Messianic rabbi. Messianic Judaism is a independent charismatic movement of Christianity that also makes certain claims about being Jewish, but, um, it's complicated, but that's complicated. (laughs) But we know I've, I grew up learning about, um, Messianic Jews who are uh, to to simplify it, Jews who believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Yeah. So there, and there's a, so there's an, there's a, there's a independent charismatic Messianic rabbi who got arrested for going into the Capitol. There's several pastors who got arrested for going in. Um, but unless somebody has an official religious role, you don't know that much about them. Right. Other than maybe some of the, sometimes in the crime reports, the FBI or other investigators will note different symbols people are carrying. Okay. Um, so for instance, the, um, appeal to heaven flag is a very big part of the, um, NAR world. This is, um, it's a white flag, green pine tree in the middle of it. And the phrase an appeal to heaven on it. It comes from the revolutionary war. 
um, one of Peter Wagner's disciples, a guy named Dutch Sheets, um, actually was given this flag in 2013 and decided this was, was a prophetic symbol of the destiny of America, that um, we need to do spiritual warfare to recapture the destiny of America. Not the past. No, well, the so, destiny. So, yes, the destiny. This is about um, restoring America. So he would say God made a covenant with America, not at the founding of America, but actually before that in the colonial period. Oh. And that now we need to fulfill that prophetic destiny. That's what the appeal to heaven flag means. Okay. Um, and you saw dozens, maybe even hundreds of these appeal to heaven flags all around the Capitol. And we even know, if you watch the footage closely, you can see um, on the front lines, some of these appeal to heaven flags are at the front point of the, where the crowds start to fight with the Capitol yeah. police officers. People are carrying appeal to heaven flags. We know of at least one rioter who went into the Capitol who was wearing an appeal to heaven flag as a, as a cape. And when the, the investigators went to arrest him, they found the appeal to heaven flag and it was, it, it, it had spots of blood and mace on it. Oh, wow. Right. So we know that people were carrying these symbols yeah. into, and yeah. we know the Christian flags that are getting carried. We know of the prayers that are being prayed inside the Capitol. Yeah. But in terms of the individual motivations, it's very hard to find for the rioters themselves, yeah. right? Because they have a lot of interest in not right. disclosing right. those sort of things. But in the crowds around them, a lot of these people still have their Facebook pages right. open to the public. You can see what they are posting at the time. A lot time. of them are so proud to have been there. Yes. Many, many of them are so proud to have been there. Yes. I think it's important to note, and you note this in the series, that they that they aren't um, praying, interceding for violence. And as a matter of fact, they're, they're praying to avoid violence. Uh, at least that's what they're saying. And so how are we supposed to think about the, the, the way they influence the riot while also explicitly praying that there would be no violence, there would be no bloodshed? How, how do you connect those? So um, there's a good piece in The Atlantic from, I think it was early, maybe May or April of, of 2023 um, by Adrian LaFrance that um, it's talking about um, the discourse of violence versus the practice of violence yeah. and what, what social scientists and people who study this know about it. And part of the point that she makes there is that violence, when, when you see an outcropping of violence, an outburst of violence, like we saw on January 6th, that's the tip of the iceberg. And underneath that is all the supporters mm. of that violence, the people who are participating in the conversation about violence, the people who are doing the ideation of violence, the people who are valorizing violence, the people who are celebrating the violence that's being done, but might not be doing it themselves. Putting the logic chain together. Yes. Yeah. And so January 6th, you can focus all the attention on the outcropping, right. but then you're missing the iceberg. Right. And so part of what I'm doing in the series and also in my book is trying to describe the Christian part of that iceberg. Yeah the Christian discourse of violence that the NAR have been pioneers in, right? They are the ones developing this vocabulary, this diction of spiritual warfare, of spiritual violence. And yeah. so, yeah, Cindy Jacobs afterwards said, I condemn the violence that happened inside the Capitol. Right. But she is doing spiritual violence outside the Capitol herself right. as the riot's going on. And so part of the, the thesis is you can only point to the Democratic Party or the Capitol and say, demons are taking over the space. Right. Demons are in control. We need to fight them. Right. That only goes so far before it tips over into actual violence. Right. Before and so, prayer doesn't feel like enough. Right. Yeah. Well, and, 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 and logically, if you truly believe that Donald Trump was ordained by God to win the election, 
that he did win the election, but then demons and a conspiracy of the Democratic Party and some Republicans stole it from him. And if we don't get him back in office, the prophetic destiny of America is on the line. The behavior that we see on January 6th makes a lot of sense. Yes. If, if you grant those There's assumptions. There's a certain physics to it. There yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. And, and so the, I, my argument is not that the NAR leaders inspired the physical violence. They created the culture of spiritual violence that so many Christians have adopted. And then they were present, driving people forward in that spiritual violence and then wanting to detach themselves from the actual violence. Um. I think part of the reason this part of the story has been so sorely missed, and you alluded to it earlier, is because of the lack of a, a, a certain literacy on the part of American media, political people who have been writing about this and covering it, um, don't understand the belief system at work here, and and certainly don't understand the subcultures. I mean, I think a lot of listeners are hearing about this for the very first time. It's foreign. Um, to, to many people. Um, do you see that changing? Do you see many, you know, real journalists beginning to dig into this and understand it in a, in a deeper way? Yeah. I I've had dozens of journalists since the series come, came out, talk to me, want to learn from me, sometimes cite me in their articles, but often not. Sometimes they're just looking for background knowledge. I'll say, Journalists who specialize in religion mm-hmm. know about this, right? but it's extremely hard to write about. Yeah. Right? So if you think about kind of mainstream American culture, not even like mainstream evangelical, just mainstream American culture, Pentecostalism feels weird. Yep. But the independent charismatics feel even weirder, right? right? Okay, now you're, yeah. now you're talking about miracles and right. apostles and prophets, and you've got this whole other vocabulary and spiritual warfare and seven mountains, right? Like it's, yeah. it's, it's an entire... It's a subculture within the evangelical subculture. Right. And, and most people who have any engagement with evangelicalism who are not a part of it, yeah. engage it as this kind of broad sweep mm-hmm. of, oh, the, these are generic white yep. Christians who are Republicans. Yep. Um, but internal to evangelicalism, there are, are all these counteracting forces and debates and arguments. And part of the point I'm trying to make is, yeah, we can talk about evangelicalism. I'm happy to talk about evangelicalism, but let's talk about the specific segments of evangelicalism that are driving this. And part of what has happened even since January 6th, um, I think part of the reason that journalists are paying more attention is it's right in their faces. And since January 6th, this dimension of charismatic spirituality and right-wing politics has just exploded in popularity. So the, the spirituality that drove January 6th is more popular today than it was on January 6th. This is what I wanted to get at. And so now you're finding these independent charismatic pastors, independent charismatic apostles, independent charismatic prophets, messianic rabbis, who are all bursting into the political realm and adopting right-wing politics. You see this on the Reawaken America tour that Michael Flynn is leading. You see this, uh, you'll find Christian praise music Charismatic Christian praise music being played by Christian worship bands at explicitly Republican political rallies, right? So Sean Foyt, who's a minor character in the series, um, is is a charismatic worship leader who's very much mentored by these NAR leaders. And he is leading this crusade to bring praise music 
sometimes to the steps and sometimes internal to all the state capitals before the 2024 election. He's going state by state, often welcomed into the state capitol by uh, Republican lawmakers. And, but they are there to declare that those spaces are Jesus's spaces. They're there to declare, I mean, they, they don't use this vocabulary, but they're there to declare Christian supremacy. And that, that's what Sean Foyt is doing. And he has all these political leaders who are happy to welcome. I mean, he hangs out with Donald Trump and Ron DeSantis and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, right? And, and that those people see something in Sean Foyt's celebrity that they want to use politically. But at the same time, they are bringing his spirituality into the heart of right-wing politics in America today. And it's become sort of the lingua franca, in some ways, of the religious right in the last, really, decade has become this charismatic spirituality and charismatic practice. You play a clip in the series of Ron DeSantis combining the language of spiritual warfare with political uh, warfare. It's something like put on the armor of God, which every Christian will know what that means, um, put, especially evangelicals, put on the armor of God to do battle with the left. Yes. Something along He, he those swaps lines. out the phrase the devil for the left. Right. Yeah, right. Um, so, listeners, if you are, if this is chilling to you, good. It, it should be. Matt, one of my concerns about the way this is covered moving forward is that journalists have the right vocabulary at their disposal to talk about it with the precision it needs. Because one very obvious danger is that, especially in the toxic media landscape, ordinary Christians and people of faith will be swept up into descriptions that do not apply to them, and that that will result in a fierce resentment that is only likely to backfire and and to and to make them feel more sympathetic to the um the people we've been talking about today and their cause and could even um radicalize them uh in turn i'm really afraid of that happening i am too <laughs> how do, how do we how do we try to avoid that my approach is i i am trying to be very very precise in my language and say Here's the corner of evangelicalism we're talking about. Here's the movement within that corner that we're talking about. Here are the particular leaders and the particular theological ideas that they are utilizing. This is not just kind of generic garden variety evangelical theology, as if there was a, such a thing, right? That evangelicalism is a very diverse movement. But I'm, I'm trying to point to the specific dynamics that are driving this. And, and part of my hesitation about the language of Christian nationalism is it does tend to paint with a very broad brush, right? Because by some definitions of Christian nationalism, somebody who says the U.S. was founded as a Christian nation, but now is a pluralistic nation and I love it, is a Christian nationalist. And some people who would say, well, I think that the U.S. governance should be informed by Christian values. Well, you're a Christian nationalist. And you ask them, well, what, what values do you mean? They're like, oh, love, honesty, you know, like, oh, okay, that's fine, yeah. right? So, or, or I want our leaders to have these values that are informed because I have these values, right? Sure, and, yeah. and, and to me, I, so seeing God bless America in church isn't my cup of tea. Right. 
but it's also not a grave threat to American democracy, right? right? right. Um, singing the battle hymn of the Republic, a great Christian yep. nationalist hymn that came out of the, the, the Civil War. Quite violent. Is, is to me, <laughs> like, I don't, when, when that shows up in the liturgy yeah. in my church, I'm, yeah, got a, well, certainly the original version. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I, I'm not thrilled, yeah. but I'm also not like this is a, a, a threat to yeah. pluralism in America. Right. right. I recognize that there are these historical dimensions, that yeah. there are varieties. The challenge is Christians in general and what we might call these kind of vague Christian nationalists are not threatened by Christian supremacy. Right. In the same way that white people yeah. are not threatened by white supremacy. Right. And so part of what we have to awaken yeah. is the sense of solidarity with the people who are threatened by those yes. things, right? And yes. my, my Jewish and my Muslim and my atheist and my Buddhist and my Hindu friends, they, they have a lot more on the line yeah. in this conversation about Christian supremacy than I yep. do. Yep. And I have to recognize that what we're talking about, I mean, frankly, the Christian supremacists don't like my form of Christianity anyway. <laughs> they're not they're not that interested in kind of a liberal mainline Protestant sort of Christianity. They think that I'm a heretic and maybe filled with demons, but they they aren't coming for me. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, where they are coming for me. You. Yep. They're coming for the LGBTQ community. Yep. They're coming for abortion rights. They are coming for religious pluralism. Yeah. And and I have to, at some point, acknowledge that I am attached to that. Yeah. And I have a responsibility for that as a yeah. Christian. Yeah. That that it's not enough for me to just point and say, oh, these people are just crazy. Right. Because <laughs> at least according to my reading of the Bible, these are my Christian sisters and brothers who yeah. are doing this. Yeah. And it's partly my responsibility to call them out and to say, what you're doing is wrong. It might not be unbiblical yeah but it's wrong yeah and it's 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 destroying our democracy and this is the 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 angle i try to take in the series and in my book is to say let's not have all these conversations about heresy uh what whatever that's an interesting theological conversation but christians need to take responsibility for this and acknowledge and educate ourselves about it because a lot of times this is happening in silos that other christians who are not a part of that world aren't even noticing yeah and then they want to detach and be like, well, that's not real Christianity. It's like, well, walks like a duck and quacks like a right. duck, calls itself a Christian. Right. Christians need to own up to yes. where this is coming from. And we need to speak out against it. We yes. need to challenge it. And the Christians are doing this more. They are. But I think we need to do it with a precision yep. that can drive a wedge between the vague and hazy sentimental Christian nationalists yes. and the Christian supremacists. And the big- I don't think there's any persuading the NAR leaders right. that they're wrong. Sure. But there are a lot of Christians who I think are like, well, yeah, I like Christian morality in America. And then when you point out to them, okay, so storming of the Capitol, okay with that? I think they say, well, no, no, I'm not okay with that. Okay, so then you're on our side. You're on the side of pluralism. We don't have to agree on every policy matter. You can be a very conservative Christian. Yep. But this is not just conservative Christianity. This is politically extreme Christianity. It's militarized Christianity. It's it's militarized aggressive, hostile, hegemonic Christianity. It's crusading Christianity. It's chauvinistic yeah. that wants to impose Christianity on people. And the people who are most equipped, I think, to talk about it with that kind of precision are people, at least with a, with a Christian background or Christian heritage, who understand the language, who understand the differences. You know, I, 
we should we should give kudos to David French actually, who started doing this in 2020 really well. Um, who is a some people would be familiar with him. His longtime uh, brilliant legal mind now he writes for the New York Times, um, religious freedom uh, lawyer, who went to uh, essentially evangelize the evangelicals, speaking to Christian churches about Donald Trump and their obligation as Christians to vote against him. And, and there were some of the best speeches, I think, of uh, in, in this variety in 2020. We need more of that. And we, and we need more of that going to 2024. Um, and that's, that's sort of where I wanted to, to land the plane here, was, which is how are the people who were very obviously defeated in 2020, and we're now watching the prosecutions unfold about January 6th, and we are waiting for a determination about whether Donald Trump was or wasn't legally involved or engaged in insurrection. Um, uh, I'm wondering, you know, almost if we could do a where are they now, right? Um, and if you sort of could forecast into the future how these groups of people are reorganizing, reorienting themselves for what they certainly believe is the fight to come. Um, and I'm going to throw a curveball in here, which is. Um, We've been talking a lot recently on the podcast, I have been anyway, um, about this new uh, um, argument that's been really well uh, constructed by two conservative uh, legal scholars, uh, Paulson and Bode, about the 14th Amendment, Section 3, which um, is self-executing and disqualifies Donald Trump from holding the office of presidency again. That question is now being worked out in the courts, at least uh, certainly in Minnesota, and there's one in Colorado that I know of. Um, so it's possible that we may have a decision on this question uh, early on. Uh, but whether it is decided early or in the very worst case late, uh, i.e. in Congress on January 6th, 2025, there is most certainly going to be some kind of political upheaval, maybe violence, very likely violence, if he, if, if he is ruled um, ineligible. So that's something I'm thinking about constantly. And whether or not we have that as a problem, what do you think we should be expecting to see from, from this particular subculture? And what can ordinary people who aren't Christians who don't have a Christian background um, do to help um, help bring some health into the discussion. Let me scare you a little before I okay. offer a little sure. optimism. Um, sure. So the the people I study, um, these NAR leaders and kind of the independent charismatic world as a whole, is um, thrumming with the same energy that led to January sixth. And in some ways, it's even at a higher octave at this point than it was before January 6th. Um, the leaders that I study, who I, I, in my book, I call them the principal theological architects of the Capitol riot. Not one of them has faced any sort of legal consequences for their role that they played on January 6th. They are more popular today than they were in the lead up January 6th. In some ways, their participation in the campaign that leads to January 6th makes them even greater celebrities, um, and they are gearing up 
for 2024. Um, and they very much identify themselves as aggrieved. They, they viewed January 6th as a skirmish in this spiritual war, a battle that they lost. But they, are, they were not disabused of any of these ideas through that. They just saw it as we didn't effectively mobilize enough spiritual warfare. We didn't get enough prayer and intercession and boots on the ground to make it happen. Um, Dutch Sheets, who I mentioned, created this appeal to Heaven Flag, who I, I, I argue that I don't think there was a single Christian leader who did more to mobilize Christians to show up on January 6th than Dutch Sheets. And on um, back in August, uh, I guess it was August of 2022, um, he posted on his blog that August 8th, will go be will go down in history as the next 911. <laughs> when what? I when I read that I was like, I I can't even place what, what August what, what happened it? on August 8th. What happened on August 8th? It was the FBI raid of Mar-a-Lago. Oh, wow. Like that is the level of grievance and identification that these folks have with Donald Trump. And there were hundreds of charismatic prophets in 2020 who in chorus in unison all claimed that God revealed to them individually that Donald Trump was destined to win the 2020 election. He was destined to be a two-term president. There was not a single dissenting voice in the independent charismatic world that I can find who said, God revealed to me the opposite. A few people came out after the election and said, well, God told me that Trump, he, that Trump wasn't going to win, but I didn't want to say that publicly because <laughs> I was worried people wouldn't vote for him. Oh, wow. And so those prophecies are right now being reawakened. Because a lot of those prophets, they look at that and say, maybe I got it wrong. He's still a two-term president. There's just a Joe Biden term in between. And so you're going to see, as, as Trump consolidates the primary, which I expect he will, yep. Yep. you're going to see more prophecies. Yep. You're going to see more spiritual warfare language entering into the political discourse. It's already at a very high pitch, but I think it's going to become worse. Um, and from, I, I, it's hard for me to picture a scenario in which the 2024 election is not contested in some, oh, yeah, no absolutely. matter who no matter wins, what. there's going to be legal battles. Yep. And these folks will see that as an arena of spiritual combat that they have to win. Yep. And so you're going to see Jericho marches. Yep. You're going to see shofars. You're going to see prayer and prophecy meetings, and you're going to see mass mobilization. You're going to see very violent rhetoric in charismatic media. And there's a playbook at this point and they know how to galvanize millions of Christians around these ideas and how to present it very compellingly. And they have the audience for it. And so I think we will be better informed this time. Part of the problem was that the media wasn't watching what was going on in these independent charismatic circles. So suddenly January 6th burst on the scene and people like, what in the world? People are taking Christian flags and shofars to the Capitol. We don't understand this, right? Well, if you'd been paying attention yeah. to that world, you would have known that was, this was coming. You would have seen the mobilization. Right? I think we'll yeah. have better transparency into it. I'm dedicated to helping make clear yeah. what, what's going on in that world. Um, so that's 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 the the dark side of this. Is I think we're going into a very um, what's going to be a very painful yeah. election year, and I I do worry that there's going to be Christianity inflected violence political violence that's going to emerge yeah. in the midst of that. I think we're already seeing the edges of that. Yeah. Um, the optimism side is all these people are people. 
right? And the, as 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 much as it's tempting to, as they are dehumanizing us and saying you're filled with demons, yeah. I'm filled with demons, and 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 they'll say, well, I I love you, I like my good demons, <laughs> I I, lo- I love you, I just hate the demons that are driving. Right. Like that is such a dehumanizing way to treat other human beings, to 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 act like. I don't have values. Right. You don't have values right. that you bring into the political realm. You're just being driven by demons. That's so dehumanizing. But we don't have to dehumanize them back. And, and part of what I'm trying to do in the, in the series and in my book is to say, these are human beings who are motivated by human things. And they, they are not divine oracles <laughs> But they're also not demons themselves, right? They, they, they are driven by human emotions. And, and the people who follow them, follow them for human reasons. Yeah. And those people have family members who maybe listen to this show or listen to Charismatic Revival Fury. And we can have those conversations. And I think it's, there, there, there's a power in saying, I understand this is your theology, but can you meet me as a person? Can you meet me as a person who has real emotions, real values? Can I talk to you about what I value? Can I, can I talk to you about why I am not filled with demons, right? And, and, and just to say, like, as much as you might have this agenda to see the seven mountains captured and all these things, can you think about your fellow human beings? Yeah. And I think sometimes even the interreligious other carries more weight for them than their Christian siblings because they see their Christian siblings as heretics who disagree. Yeah. But say, like, your Jewish neighbor, yeah. Your your Muslim neighbor, yeah. Do you really want them kicked out of America? Right. Do you really want them not to have the same rights as you? Or do you want America to be America for everyone? Yeah. People who are religious and people who are not religious, people who are Christian and people who are Muslim, and can we build a pluralism that has room for these people with sharp elbows? I recognize that that's that's just a part of the fabric of America. Is there's going to be a lot of people with sharp elbows, but that doesn't mean we can't still have pluralism. We can have all the policy disagreements you want, but can we build a coalition for pluralism, a supermajority that will definitively say whatever the foundings of America were, and it's complicated, I recognize that, but we are a nation for everyone. We're a nation of immigrants. We're a nation of white people. We are a nation of black people and Latino people and Asian American people. We're a nation of Native Americans, and we are a nation that includes all of these different religious traditions, and that that is beautiful and doesn't need to be overthrown for some Christian hegemonic project. As I'm like wiping away tears here. Matthew Taylor, thank you for being here. Thank you, thank you for I having me. That's a good place to leave it. All right. Come back. Happy to. Thanks for listening, and I hope you found this two-part series useful. For reasons that should now be clear to you, there's a real threat here, but you can also help address it by raising awareness. Just think of one person who might be interested in this discussion and share it with them. And if you're part of a Christian community or you know Christian leaders, encourage them to speak out against Christian supremacy. And if you have just another 30 seconds before you start a new episode, open up the Apple Podcast app and leave us a five-star review there to help even more people find the show. Finally, I always enjoy reading messages from you, but this topic is, of course, personal to me. So if you want to share your thoughts in more detail, I'd love to read them. Just send us an email at podcast at politicology.com. And I'll talk to you in the next episode.